0: This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wy. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte.
1: A lot of this, I think, is gonna stay a mystery unless somebody decides to have that road
2: to Damascus moment and um, come forward.
3: They just felt that Missouri law enforcement didn't know anything.
2: They lawyered up right away and refused to answer any questions or provide any information. and. To my knowledge, 25 years later, they haven't provided any other information
3: yet, so. It was this thick and this tall and that big, so, I mean, there was a lot of case work to it.
0: The letter arrives in a small envelope, the kind that might come in a set of personal stationery. It's hand-addressed to associate circuit judge in Cahoka, Missouri. Next to the address, someone has written legal notice, underlined it twice, and then below that, in all capital letters, DO NOT OPEN. The return address has the sender's name, a number, and a long set of initials. The envelope eventually makes its way to the Missouri Highway Patrol, where officers know what the number and the initials on the return address mean. An inmate number and the name of a Missouri state maximum security prison. The letter itself is written on simple lined paper in neat block letters. Like the handwriting, its contents are direct and to the point.
2: To whom it may concern, around 13 years ago, a female was found dead. The location was about one mile west of Cahoka on the north side of the highway laying in the ditch. She was beaten to death. I have pertinent information regarding this unsolved murder, i.e., eyewitness testimony, and can give you a confirmation on what time it took place, description of car, and lead to DNA match. Don't contact media. My life would be in danger.
0: From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers, and this is Bonaparte. As we heard in an earlier episode, one of the people I've spoken to is defense lawyer Ron Kuby. Calling Kuby a defense lawyer is a bit like saying Oprah Winfrey is a talk show host. Kuby is a figure of legend on the American left, an activist lawyer from a very different part of the legal world than Annie and me. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to him about Laura's case, because he brings a different perspective. But he's also an expert in cold cases. For years, he's handled wrongful convictions. And a wrongful conviction case, it's really a cold case in disguise, because the best way to exonerate someone is to find the real criminal. Only, it's even harder, because the cops think the case is closed. I asked Kuby what he thought of Annie's quest to find out what happened to Laura, and specifically, whether the experience and resources of Annie being a partner at a major law firm might help.
3: So I don't know what, what they're able to do, but I imagine it's more than most mortals. But not, you still don't have state power.
0: By state power, Kubi means law enforcement.
3: Because state power just makes this so much easier. You know, having, like, white men with semi-automatic weapons knock on people's doors and badges, I mean, it's remarkably effective in many places, you know, getting people to
0: talk. Where the cops are potential allies, The most productive thing you can do is push law enforcement to do their job. But, as I said to Kuby, the Missouri Highway Patrol has had 25 years to solve this, with no luck.
3: There is an interstate nexus, right? There is Missouri and Iowa. You would think that—I mean, that does provide a basis for federal involvement.
0: Kuby's talking about getting the FBI involved. It's one of the first things Annie tried.
4: So I hired— the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Iowa. You know, I wanted him to review the file and help me get the FBI interested in the case.
0: A U.S. attorney is a senior federal prosecutor. It's a presidential appointment and a position of considerable influence and experience.
4: I gave him a retainer payment. He looked at the file, and he actually returned the retainer payment and said, I don't think I can help you. That was hard. I was like, Ugh. I mean, if the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District is telling me he doesn't think he can get the FBI interested in this case, where do I go from here?
0: The lawyer told Annie that the case was too cold and there wasn't enough evidence that the crime had crossed state lines. He said the FBI might get interested if there was a break in the case, but she needed a new witness. How to find someone and how to encourage them to come forward.
1: She just came right in and um, just a whole, yeah, the world kind of turned upside down of, This is the most fascinating thing I've heard.
0: That's Melinda Pratarelli. She runs a marketing agency in Iowa City called MELD.
1: How did she find us? Why is she here? You know, is this something that we can really help her with? You know, how will we do that? Yeah, it just, um, the next day when we got together with our staff, we said, so this is what happened yesterday after 5 o'clock.
0: After getting told that the FBI wouldn't take up the case, Annie decided to try offering a reward. Together with Laura's mother, Leanne, and her sister, Sarah, Annie started with $10,000. But getting the money together was just the beginning. How do you go about offering a reward?
4: So I was kind of shocked by the lack of guidelines. Like, you think it's this commonplace thing, there must be some set of rules, but there, there really isn't. You need to have a tip line, and you need to have the ability to track down the people who gave you the tips in case they qualify for the reward. Um, do we want somebody answering a tip line live? And if so, should it just, like, route to my cell phone or someone else's cell phone, depending on the time of day? I asked the police, of course, too. Did they want the tips going to them? You know, and they're like, no, we don't, no, we, we don't do anything like
0: that. The biggest challenge is less of a mystery, but it's still not easy to accomplish, getting the word out. And that's where Melinda comes in.
1: If you think about it as an octopus that has eight arms, right? What are all the places where somebody, what arm might they come in through? Uh, Where might they land? How might they want to communicate? What do they consider a safe way to communicate? Those were the key elements.
0: With an unlimited budget, of course, you can just buy your way in front of anyone who might know something. But that's a lot of people. And advertising, even online, isn't that precise. So Annie needs so-called free media. In other words, newspapers, magazines, websites, and podcasts. And the media likes a story, but a story needs a hook. An unsolved murder isn't enough. When Annie first told me this story in that Manhattan backyard, I told her I was interested, but I wanted to be clear about one thing. Your friend's murder isn't the story I told her. You are. When I said that, Annie laughed, and then she said, yeah, that's what Melinda said, too. Offering a reward is only part of Annie's strategy. She also wants to build on the existing law enforcement investigation. But to do that, she needs to know what the police have been able to find so far. When I started following Annie's efforts, she had the version of the police file that Leanne obtained back in 1997 as part of Samson's custody case. Most of the reports in that file, they end with the same final paragraph.
2: This investigation is being continued. It's
0: a curious and strangely evocative phrase, and one I'd gotten used to seeing over and over again as I'd reviewed the file. This investigation is being continued. It's a promise. It's even a little optimistic. Unfortunately, the last report
2: in the file that Leanne has ends differently. This investigation remains suspended.
0: But we had reason to think that there had been subsequent activity. Leanne was in periodic contact with the police, and on several occasions, they'd told her that there were new developments, though nothing that ever led to an arrest. Once, when Samson was a teenager, they'd even asked for a swab of his saliva, although they didn't say why. And even if nothing new had happened since 1997, Chief Conger told me that the full file was kept in a large briefcase. My version fits in a medium-sized binder. It contains no photographs, and there have to be more detailed autopsy records. Conger also told me that every interview held at the police station was recorded, and those tapes should be in the file. Tony Bergman was interviewed at the police station, and others might have been as well. For a litigator like Annie or me, handing us a report with missing documents is like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Litigation is all about documents. When you hear about a lawsuit costing a company millions of dollars in legal fees, the overwhelming majority of that money was spent obtaining and analyzing documents. We even have a special word for it. We call it discovery. In the last episode, I said that as a journalist, one of the things I miss most about being a lawyer is being able to put people under oath. Well, the other thing I miss is document subpoenas. At my old job, I subpoenaed individuals, corporations, law firms, laboratories, private equity firms, banks. But journalists don't get to issue subpoenas. We do get a pretty good consolation prize, however, the Public Records Act request or what's sometimes called a Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Anyone can submit a Public Records Act request, and they can be quite fruitful. They are only good against the government, but nobody has more information on more subjects than the government. Missouri's Public Records Act is Chapter 610 in the Revised Statutes of Missouri, Sections 23 through 225. To greatly summarize, Missouri is required to provide any member of the public with whatever records somebody wants, upon written request. Now, the other 221-odd sections, they're mostly exceptions to that rule. So in practice, it's not quite that easy. And cops really don't like to part with investigative materials. In fact, one of those exceptions is for active investigations. But Annie found a loophole.
4: Because Leanne is the mother of the victim, she's entitled to information, especially with a cold case like this that has not been solved. So we submitted a public records request in May of 2020, and, um, you know, they denied it.
0: Of course they did. But that's okay. In Discovery, getting rebuffed on your first attempt, it's merely the opening act. It's like a duel, where these rituals that you have to go through, tossing your gauntlet or examining your pistols before getting down to the action.
4: We kept on them.
2: Your office summarily denied the request on May twenty. I
4: had an associate working with me on it, and he called. Your
2: denial of the request violates Missouri's sunshine.
4: And um, he got some further information about why they were denying it.
2: Because the investigation into Ms. Van you Weyer's know, death. No, we
4: sent a follow-up letter um, in June. We
2: construe your May 27th denial of the request. They
4: did kick it up to kind of the highest uh, levels of the Missouri State Highway Patrol legal department We will
2: interpret any further denial of the request as a knowing and purposeful violation of the Sunshine
4: Law. You know, I've been talking with their their in-house lawyers there, and then the GC reached out to me.
2: That's
0: the Highway Patrol's general counsel, their top lawyer. He told Annie he wanted to produce the full file, but there was a problem.
4: Basically, there was current activity going on.
0: After nearly 25 years, something was happening in the investigation according to the Highway Patrol's lawyer, anyway. A year earlier, I might have been excited by this, but Leanne's experience dampened my excitement.
3: Every time I would call them, they would say, oh, I have to hang up, your case just went hot. like, what? The minute I call? How weird is that? They have to hang up immediately because my case went hot.
0: From what I've seen, Missouri law enforcement officers in their individual capacity have treated Leanne with consideration and kindness. But as an institution, cops are just not welcoming of public scrutiny. They are plenty capable of fending off family members with vague claims that this just isn't a good time. Sometimes, though, the inquiry itself can make the case get hot because it prompts the police to do something. That's part of Annie's strategy, in fact, to keep the case on the highway patrol's radar screen.
4: Just keeping on them causes things to happen in the case. And again, it's... Not necessarily, I, I don't mean to denigrate law enforcement. I know that they've done a lot on this file. They No doubt they have. Um, and they have other priorities in other cases. But just by being noisy, you keep this case a priority, and it does make a difference.
0: And that might have been what happened here. Because as we would later learn, when the Missouri state lawyer told Annie that there was something going on in the case, he wasn't making it up. There was something going on in the case. And Annie's letter seems to have accelerated it. Remember Tony Bergman's unsettled, paranoid call to the sheriff that we heard in episode four?
3: She was found dead on the highway.
0: That was on April 7th, 2020. The sheriff's deputy had promptly reported the call to the highway patrol, but two months later, there had been, as far as we can tell, no follow-up. Until June 2nd, when Annie sent her letter. Just a few days after that, the Missouri Highway Patrol finally interviewed Tony. Then, a few weeks after that, on July 29th, Annie texts me. The text is just three words. Got the file. Annie is optimistic that the full police file will offer more avenues to pursue, but we know it won't solve the case by itself. If the police could close this case based on what's in the file alone, it would be solved. So Annie's efforts to get new evidence using the reward continue, which means Melinda's efforts to promote Annie's story also continue.
1: I just said we are going to have a lot better chance to get attention from the press and on websites and things if we do leverage who you are, because, you know, it's impressive. She said, um, it's very Anne, so she's very succinct about things. She said, I understand that, and so I am okay with doing that. You know, essentially, she hears you on the strategy, right? So that became champion for Laura because of Anne's last name.
0: Annie and Melinda have regular meetings, sorting out the logistics of the reward and the media strategy.
1: On mine, it says
4: connecting to audio. Yeah, Yeah, usually
0: that.
4: that.
0: Early on, they agree there has to be a website, but that they need an 800 number as well. Annie records a greeting for the tip line, which, after much discussion, they decide should go straight to voicemail.
4: The tip line for Laura Van Y.
0: The number, I should add, is 1-855-SOLVE25. The website? is at championforlora.com.
4: And we are offering a $10,000 reward for new information.
0: The team also writes a press release. It reads like a magazine article, and that's on purpose. A press release is bait, hoping to attract a journalist hungry for a story.
4: The Des Moines Register is probably going to do an article early next week, probably Monday.
0: The Register does run a story, and so does the news website, The Daily Beast. But to get the word out, free media still has to be supplemented with paid media, which will cost more money.
4: That's why I think we should do ads.
0: Advertising on Facebook, for better or worse, is a powerful tool to reach people, and the team develops a targeting strategy based on zip codes, education levels, age, and other factors. But in August 2021, they go public with the Facebook page and their publicity. Hello. Hi. Okay.
4: That's unexpectedly nerve-wracking. The Facebook page for our reward went live tip line is live uh i'm feeling very nervous (laughs) yeah yeah
0: can you expand on your feeling of nervousness what are you nervous about
4: um i guess just being so exposed you know Mm -hmm. just being so out there with this i mean i can actually it makes me understand even more you know, why Laura's family, you know, why specifically Sarah and Leanne would not want to be the people doing this. It's just kind of scary in a way. Um, I'm going to have to really figure out how to use Facebook too, because I really don't know how to do it. So I'll let you know if anything comes in. I mean, like I've got all these notifications going off constantly. Grasshopper notifies me. Facebook notifies me. You know, it's kind of crazy.
0: Sounds like you got plenty to do. So I'll let you go. Okay. All right.
4: Bye. Have a good day,
0: Jason. You too. Bye-bye. When the Missouri Highway Patrol finally coughed up the rest of the police file, they sent Annie a digital file. Of course, digital files have all kinds of advantages over paper. But there is something lost when the documents arrive on your computer screen. You can't immediately see how much you've got or what kind of materials they are. You can't flip through the pages to get a high-level sense of what you're working with. Pretty quickly, though, Annie and I figured out the main headline. There had been a significant development in the case in 2008, something that spurred the police to re-interview important witnesses, to initiate a nationwide DNA collection effort, and make at least two visits to a state penitentiary. What stirred up the law enforcement anthill was a letter written by an inmate serving a long sentence for serious crimes, some of them violent. Since he told law enforcement he feared for his safety, we'll call him the informant. According to the letter, the informant could
2: provide... Pertinent information regarding this unsolved murder, i.e., eyewitness testimony, and can give you a confirmation on what time it took place, description of car, and lead to DNA match.
0: Some context is required here. Jailhouse informants are a common source of information for law enforcement, and they can be critical to arrest and conviction. But jailhouse informants are also controversial and deeply problematic. As much as half of all wrongful murder convictions are secured based on jailhouse informant testimony. Prisoners have an obvious incentive to lie, the possibility of reducing their sentence. And the prisons themselves provide the infrastructure of deceit. Entire networks of prisoners have been uncovered, feeding one another information about crimes and suspects and investigations so that a supposed informant can craft a compelling fake tip. A lead is a lead, however, and skepticism isn't reason enough to ignore this one. Missouri law enforcement springs into action with surprising speed. The letter is postmarked Wednesday, January thirtieth, two 2008. And by the following Monday, prosecutors and the police hold a meeting at Missouri Highway Patrol headquarters in Jefferson City. The report on the Jefferson City meeting, it's the first of the new reports in the file. And its final paragraph reads,
2: This investigation is reopened and active.
0: Reading that gave me goosebumps. By this time, 2008, Laura's case is the responsibility of a new Highway Patrol investigator, Sergeant Steve Wilhoyt. Wilhoyt has had the longest official role on Laura's case. He joined the investigations unit in 2005, and on day one, he was shown Laura's file.
2: It was just one of those when you first start we get your foot in the door, people in the unit already say, okay, you need to make yourself familiar with this case, and this case, and this case. But I think was, that was one of those, those cases, the Laura Van White
0: case. Wilhoyt spent three years as a uniform cop in Kansas City before going to the academy to become an investigator for the Highway Patrol. It runs in the family. His uncle, Weldon Wilhoyt, was second in command of the Highway Patrol when Laura died and was later promoted to superintendent of the patrol. When Weldon's nephew took over Laura's case, one thing was clear to him from the file.
2: I do think this is a very solvable case. Uh, there's somebody up there that knows exactly what's ha- what happened, and they just had been uh, very tight-lipped over the last 25 years.
0: When Will Hoyt sees the letter from the informant, Laura's case has been on his desk, dormant, for three years. Maybe this letter is the key to cracking it. The police file reports that Wilhoyt and another officer head to the prison, which is in another part of the state, to interview the informant. But, as Wilhoyt describes in his report, the informant is cagey. First, he only wants to speak face-to-face, and not through the telephone and glass partition of the visiting area, because he fears the call will be recorded. Then, once they get him moved to a private room, He's only willing to give the police some of what he says he knows and wants to be transferred to a different prison before he gives up any more. Wilhoyt describes making two trips to the prison several months apart to get the full story. As detailed in Wilhoyt's reports, the informant describes a roadside confrontation involving two men and a woman that he witnessed on Route 136 the night Laura died it's not the most credible story. It changes a bit each time he tells it, and while the informant describes the woman in remarkable detail for a brief encounter 12 years earlier, his description doesn't match Laura at all. The informant also says he was with someone else that night, but when the police follow up with that person, they say the informant's story never happened. Even if the informant's story is true, it doesn't give Wilhoyt much to go on. The informant only knows the last name of one of the people he claims to have seen. But a record search doesn't connect this name with any people of interest. All of this begins to feel like another dead end. But there is one detail in the informant's story, whether true or not, that ends up having a significant impact. Indeed, it may yet break this case wide open. The informant tells the investigators that one of the men has a bad cut on his hand, that he's bleeding and that his blood was on the woman's clothes. Wilhoyt takes note of this, and he has Laura's clothes re-examined by the crime lab in Jefferson City. In November of 2008, Wilhoyt gets a phone call from the crime lab. The technician tells him that they have discovered a previously unidentified blood sample on Laura's shirt. And what's more, the lab has been able to analyze the blood and now has a DNA profile. Wilhoyd's short report of this phone call ends with this final paragraph.
2: This investigation remains active.
0: It's the fall of 2008, and for the first time in 12 years, the Missouri Highway Patrol has a significant new lead in Laura's case. A jailhouse informant's tip prompts them to re-examine Laura's clothes, where they find previously unknown blood, and they've developed a DNA profile from that blood. By itself, the DNA profile doesn't tell them much, except that it's human and from a man. The next step is standard procedure for crime labs. They run the DNA profile through an FBI database called CODIS, which tracks DNA collected by law enforcement nationwide. But that produces no hits meaning it's unlikely that the person whose blood was on Laura's shirt has had much interaction with law enforcement. The other way that Missouri can make use of this new DNA information is to compare it directly against the DNA of people known to have been with Laura the night she died. Collecting DNA is 21st century basic police work, and the Missouri Highway Patrol pursues this avenue vigorously. They contact everyone from the truck driver who found Laura, who they locate living in Anchorage, Alaska, to her son Samson, who is now 14 years old and living in California. And, of course, they take DNA from Tony Bergman and Donnie Knight. They also use the opportunity to have follow-up interviews with them. Two weeks after the crime lab develops the DNA profile, the police contact the Bergmans. How they do it speaks volumes. First, they've gone to the trouble to get a search warrant, an order from a judge compelling Tony to provide a saliva sample for DNA testing. The police don't do this for any of the other half dozen people from whom they collect DNA. Those requests are all voluntary. With Tony, they're not giving him an option to refuse. Second, they show up unannounced and in force. A total of six officers execute the warrant. When they roll up, Tony is coming out of the house, and he's loading up his car. It appears the police have arrived, just as Tony and Sarah are going through one of their several breakups. Two of the six cops follow Tony to the house he's staying at a few minutes away. Once there, the police report indicates that they ask Tony to recount the events of the night Laura died. And he tells them the familiar story of driving Laura and Samson from Bonaparte to Cahoka, going to bed, and waking up to find Laura gone. Then the conversation gets more heated. The cop tells Tony that they've done a, quote, statement analysis on the written statement that Sarah gave them back in 1996 and that she'd been deceptive. I'm not sure if this is true or not. There's no record of any formal analysis in the file, and this is just the sort of thing cops say to witnesses to put pressure on them. Tony gets angry, saying that the cops were, quote, pointing a finger at him. More macho
2: posturing follows. I told Bergman I had not once pointed a finger at him, and I asked Deputy Kovar if I had. And Deputy Kovar stated no one had pointed a finger at Bergman.
0: Then the report says this.
2: Bergman stated he was looking at lethal injection.
0: The cops ask Tony who he thinks, quote, did it. Tony says he's suspicious of the highway patrol and wants to know where Officer Clemens was that night. It's a novel entry in speculation bingo. I'll give him that. The interview continues in a roundabout fashion. It's police interviewing 101 the cops are keeping him talking, going back over the same ground, listening for inconsistencies or new bits of information. At one point, there's this.
2: Bergman stated for the last 10 years, anyone who stayed with him was told not to leave without letting him know.
0: Eventually, the interview ends, and the report notes that Tony is getting repeated phone calls asking what's going on and what the police want. The report doesn't say who's calling, but I assume it's Sarah, who's back at her house with Sergeant Wilhoyt and the three other officers. Sarah is also interviewed that afternoon, and there are two interesting aspects of that conversation. She tells Wilhoyt that she still has the green jacket Laura was wearing the night she was killed. Sarah claims it was in their trailer when the police searched it in 1996, that they knew it was there, but they didn't take it. This is strange that she would have held on to a dead woman's jacket for 12 years, and, implausible, that the police would have ignored it in their search. The jacket was listed on their search warrant as an item they were seeking. Anyway, she says she will find it and provide it to the police now. The police don't take a DNA swab from Sarah because the blood on Laura's shirt has male DNA. The interview with Sarah ends at 4.58 p.m. At 6.20, Wilhoyt gets a phone call from Donnie, who wants to know why the case has been reopened. Wilhoyt tells him he can't talk about it over the phone, and they agree to meet the next morning. This is more cop gamesmanship, of course. Wilhoyt has no intention of telling Donnie anything about his investigation, on the phone or in person. He wants to look Donnie Knight in the eye and get his DNA. He gets his chance at 10 o'clock the next morning. He and two other officers meet with Donnie. For some reason, they meet at a McDonald's. Will Hoyt is a much more descriptive report writer than Officer Schroeder, and his report gives us this description of Donnie.
2: Knight, who was visibly shaken and sweating profusely, said he had called into work because he had been so upset by recent events. Donnie
0: describes the night of October 25th and adds some new details. He says that he and Laura were still a couple and that they had been trying to, quote, work it out. He claims that two nights before she died, Laura had spent the night at his apartment. And he tells Wilhoyt that Laura smoked marijuana daily. This last claim is almost certainly false, because the autopsy found no trace of marijuana in her blood. Donnie tells Wilhoyt he always thought Laura had been killed by a truck. In support of this, Donnie says that a friend of Laura's, Corinna Bailey, told Sarah I assume he's referring to his sister, Sarah Bergman that the trucking company had paid Leanne a substantial amount of money. This is a story that has made the rounds in Iowa City and among the Knights. I've heard several references to it. But I'm confident it's false. Leanne denies it, and it's implausible in the extreme that the trucking company would have paid her anything, considering that the case remains open and Officer Clemens testified at the inquest, quote, I don't believe the truck driver hit her. Also, I interviewed Corinna Bailey, the friend Donnie claims told him about the settlement.
3: Yes. Yes, I did hear that story. Yep. It might have been Donnie that told me that, actually, now that I think about it. I'm almost certain Donnie's someone who told me that she got supposedly a million dollars from some trucking company, which seemed rather far-fetched.
0: Will Hoyt's report on the interview at the McDonald's goes on to state that he asks Donnie if he had ever confronted Tony or Sarah about Laura's death. Donnie says he has not, but the subject was... And here Wilhoy quotes Donnie directly, a real dark place for a couple of years. And Donnie says that he felt, quote, vagueness from Tony regarding what had happened, and that it did not, quote, feel
2: right. Knight said he had no reason to protect Bergman. And if he had done something to Van Wy, it would be tough fucking shit for Tony. Knight agreed there were issues with Bergman's story.
0: In the end, The blood on Laura's shirt doesn't match the DNA taken from any of the men in Laura's life, not Donnie, Tony, or even Samson. The police confirm it doesn't match anyone at the party in Bonaparte, including the friend of Rebecca's that Laura accuses of rape, nor does it match the man Tony alleged was having an affair with Sarah. The blood, and the DNA it contains, remains a tantalizing lead, but one the police cannot connect to a suspect. At least, not in 2008. The DNA state-of-the-art has changed since then, and in 2018, it advanced considerably.
3: I was on the couch at my boyfriend's house reading the paper.
0: That's Leanne, Laura's mother.
3: I saw the Golden State Killer article. I was on the front page, and then I called Anne and said, Ann, you got to read about how they've solved the Golden State Killer case after 30 years or something, 35 years. I said, you've got to read this. So she read it, and we said, you know, we really need to get Missouri going on this, because they've got nothing.
0: The Golden State Killer was one of the country's most notorious serial murderers, and the police finally caught him using a novel DNA technique called DNA genealogy. Missouri had unknown blood taken from Laura's clothes, Could this technique tell us whose blood it was?
5: Genetic genealogy is using DNA to learn more about a person's family tree and their biological or genetic heritage.
0: That's Cece Moore, the world's foremost investigative genetic genealogist.
5: If you have an unknown suspect or an unknown victim, you can reverse engineer their identity based on the family trees of those they're sharing DNA with.
0: Her technique is simple to describe, but devilishly difficult to do in practice. When law enforcement has an unidentified DNA profile, CeCe and her team compare that DNA to DNA available in various public databases. They're not looking for an exact match. Law enforcement can do that itself. They're looking for people related to the unknown suspect.
5: We can predict how closely or distantly someone is related to the unknown subject, based on how much DNA they're sharing. However, it almost never just points to one possible relationship. There are multiple possible relationships in every instance, unless it's a parent, child, or a full sibling. Every other amount of shared DNA has multiple possibilities, so you have to keep an open mind. First of all, a second cousin is genetically equivalent to a first cousin twice removed and a half first cousin once removed.
0: The DNA tells Cece when two people are close or distant relatives, but it doesn't specify the precise relationship. They could be an uncle and a nephew or cousins. It gets complicated fast. Ideally, Cece gets a few hits in the database, so she knows she has someone who is a few degrees from the suspect and someone else with a different relationship. Then she builds the family tree for these people and triangulates for the person or people who are the right amount related to be the suspect. What makes all this so difficult is that you can't just order up a family tree. The Internet has made it less difficult, but building a family tree is still painstaking, labor-intensive work. It requires searching birth and wedding announcements, obituaries and burials, and sorting through name changes, adopted kids, and multiple marriages. And if that's not enough, when CC gets started, She often doesn't even know who the person in the database actually is.
5: There's going to be a name, but that name can be anything the person wanted to enter. It can be a username like Butterfly45, which it is pretty often. It can be initials. It can be anything. It can be a fake name. So they just enter what they want. Hopefully for our sake, it's a real name and it's an unusual name that we can research, but it might not be. And then... What's really important is there is an email address. Oftentimes that email address is what really helps us identify who that match is.
0: From a couple of email addresses, Cece and her team build a giant family tree and then parse out who on that tree is just the right amount related to the people they started with. And that's the person whose DNA law enforcement has. Amazingly, it works, a lot. When I spoke with Cece in the summer of 2021, she'd helped solve 157 criminal matters, the great majority of them cold cases. Cece has probably solved more cold cases than anyone in history.
5: So far, every case where the perpetrator was identified through genetic genealogy that has gone to trial or resolution has been a conviction. I feel like we are identifying a new type of criminal in a lot of them somebody who victimized a stranger very violently and then seems to have just gone on and lived their lives and never done it again. Now, we don't know for sure, but that's certainly how it appears in many of these cases. That's why they're cold cases, because there was no obvious connection. It's a crime of opportunity often.
0: When Leanne and Annie discovered that Missouri had an unidentified blood sample taken from Laura's T-shirt, They started lobbying the highway patrol to hire Parabon, the company where CeCe is the chief genetic genealogist. All through the spring of 2020, Annie and Leanne texted me with messages like, quote, Will Hoyt says they're considering the Parabon route.
1: Part of what stalled out that possibility was we were having trouble figuring out how to budget for that. Because we're a county, we're a government, we're a small county.
0: That's April Wilson, who is the current prosecutor in Cahoka. She's the senior law enforcement official with ultimate responsibility for Laura's
1: case. This is one of the most important cases, the most important case, if you will, um, when you have a death of a 21-year-old woman. Loss of life is the case we give the most attention to because we don't want the loss of life in our communities, particularly at the hands of someone else.
0: Eventually... After several different agencies agreed to contribute funds, the state was able to hire Parabon. That was in June of 2020. The process is slow, and after the initial good news, the police have been tight-lipped. In the summer of 2021, we thought they had a lead, and there was a rumor in Cahoka that someone was about to be arrested. But Wilson told me that was a false alarm. I'm recording this episode in November, almost 18 months after Missouri agreed to hire Parabon, And all Annie knows is that Parabon has the material and is working on the project. Like I said, it's labor intensive. While Annie waits for new information about the DNA, she's busy trying to find new evidence of her own by publicizing the reward. The article in the Des Moines Register ran on the front page and got a lot of local attention. Naturally, people went onto Facebook to talk about it, and Annie's team was ready for them, with a Champion for Laura Facebook page up and running, as well as a tip line, and email.
4: It's a lot of people from Cahoka and Bonaparte, honestly, who may or may not have a tangential connection to this case, but they have helpful information like this is the gas station that's actually open at at two in the morning. You know, I mean, it's stuff like that, that like you really can't find, you know, just from looking online and it's not in the police file. At some point, someone's going to come forward with some seemingly irrelevant detail that's going to snap something into place here, right? And so I haven't disclosed people's names to the police if they didn't want to be named, but I have also passed along the information that I thought was
0: helpful to the police. Annie is also contacted by people with direct connections to the case. Sarah Bergman, who is Sarah Knight now, messages Annie on Facebook.
4: She said, not one thing in the Des Moines Register article was correct. I'm contacting a lawyer about slander charges. And I said to her, I am not a reporter, Sarah, and if you believe there are errors in the story, you should contact the reporter. I would prefer that you join the effort to solve this case than continue to make legal threats to me.
0: Another disgruntled family member takes his complaints public.
1: Last weekend, all of a sudden, we wake up and we think, "Uh uh-oh, there are 25 comments from a particular person who has just clearly been on the page writing horrible things. And just hitting paste and cut, cut, paste, you know, over and over. And sending in Facebook inbox messages that we can see. He apparently is
4: a a cousin or nephew of Donnie's. You know, he's related to to Donnie in some way and related to, to Sarah Bergman. Um, and then he started calling the tip line, which he still does occasionally, and leaving obscenity-laden voicemails. You know, calling me all sorts of names that I don't want to repeat. You know, I'm so dumb, and, um, I'm a, you know, a B word and a C word and an F word and whatever, whatever other word.
0: Annie provided me with some of these voicemails. If you're easily offended by language or listening with someone who is, this might be a good time to hit that 30-second skip button. This
3: is all fake. The person that had to do with Laura is the truck driver, and you all know it. Leanne probably paid the truck driver to
0: do it. Is that the information you don't want getting out there? He's not happy about Annie's involvement in the case. You're not friends or family of Laura. I'm her family, you dumb bitch. Go fuck yourself, And there's this one. You better watch your back. It's not just attacks on Annie that are a problem. There's a lot of amateur sleuthing, some of which can get irresponsible. People with an ax to grind or who have a conspiratorial mindset, they make allegations and offer dubious theories. Annie and her team moderate the Facebook page, blocking the really offensive stuff, and encouraging people to keep the conversation civil and productive. By late September, there have been some tips with useful information, but things are slowing down. There really needs to
4: be a breakthrough in the case. I'm like getting very discouraged.
0: Mm. Just from the time it's taking or?
4: Yeah. And just the lack of interesting info coming through the tips, you know, it's just all very like, well, I think this person did it. It's like, okay, give me some info, you know, it's just disappointing. Yeah. I guess I just am, am waiting waiting around more, you know? There's already been plenty of that. There's not a whole lot more we can do. Like, we either get some useful information out of the public, which hasn't happened yet, or they figure out some other new evidence, you know?
0: Annie has a few cards left to play, however. One thing we didn't get in the updated police file were detailed autopsy records. Since Jim Trainum first suggested to Annie that she hire a medical examiner to review those records, she's been trying to locate them. But the bureaucracy has resisted. The autopsy was done in Illinois at the hospital Laura was taken to that night. But the medical examiner was a private contractor, so there's confusion over who retains the records. Plus, there was a flood several years ago that destroyed some old records. Missouri claims they don't have the records at all, although we know they did at one point because there's a report in the file that they obtained a copy from Illinois In 2008. Annie is still pushing. And then there's this podcast. For nearly two years, I've been following Annie's efforts, and she's taken hours out of her packed schedule to discuss the case with me. It's a gamble. She has no editorial control and no promise that the podcast will even reach an audience. But when it launches on October 26th, the 25th anniversary of Laura's death, she hopes it will generate more interest and just maybe Someone listening will come forward with critical information. If you or someone you know might have that critical information, please get in touch. Even the smallest detail can be the key that unlocks a cold case. The tip line is 1-855-SOLVE25. The website is at championforlaura.com. Laura's death, however it happened, is more than an open police investigation. It was and remains a personal tragedy for those who knew her, and it has changed the course of their lives in profound ways. From the moment Annie first told me about what happened, there was one person whose story I wanted to hear more than anyone else's.
3: It's definitely kind of a butterfly effect in terms of minute details that could have changed that would have meant that, like, you know, my mom lived and I had never moved to California with my grandmother.
0: Laura's son, Samson, was just 14 months old when Laura died, and not yet four when his grandmother Leanne took him to California. She raised him there, and Samson had virtually no contact with his father, who Leanne blamed for Laura's death. It took me a few months to get in touch with Samson. He was traveling and hard to pin down. When he settled, however, he'd landed in the most surprising, or perhaps the most obvious, place of all.
3: I am uh, in a little town about 20 miles away from Iowa City um, at my father's house right now. It's pretty chill.
0: That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Wetherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Voice acting by Matt Addis. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wye Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review, and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening.